You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. They wanted us to try and change a society that is damn near unchangeable. While we were there, it was semi-successful. But exactly what I and most of my platoon predicted is what happened. We pulled out, the next unit went in, they pulled out, and then it went right back to the Taliban. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 10, Sandcastles in the Tide. From Pennsylvania, Tommy and I drive nearly 500 miles north through a snowstorm, skirting Lake Erie and Lake Ontario on our way to upstate New York. We have to hurry to catch 3rd Squad veteran Taylor Moody before he sets off on an epic journey of his own. It's freezing outside when we pull into the driveway of his grandmother's house in a tiny town called Deer River, where we find Moody crouched between the bumper of his Dodge Ram and a 20-foot trailer, making last-minute repairs. Morning. Morning. Installed a trailer brake? Just the controller. I had one, but it's such a piece of shit. It's all finicky. It doesn't tell me whether it's working or not. So how- Moody's setting off tomorrow on a 4,200-mile road trip to Alaska, the kind of long haul that you don't want to make without knowing whether your trailer brakes are working. You got your whole life packed up in there? Everything I own. Looks like you own a lot of shit. So this is Tommy. <laughs> Hey, nice Tommy. to meet you. I'm Taylor. I'm being rude, I guess. Nice How you to doing, see you man? Good to see you, too. You look a lot healthier. You know, I think it was at least 20 pounds I lost while we was out there. Wow. Yeah, you were looking perilously thin. Wow. Moody was a scarecrow when I first met him in Sangin. Six foot two and gaunt to the point of emaciation. Yeah, I was probably getting ready to keel over if we had been there much longer. He was only 20 back then. Now he's nearing his 30th birthday. He's still slim, but the hollow cheeks I remember filled out and protected from the cold by a full-on mountain man beard. The two-story farmhouse is surrounded by tall trees and flanked by the Deer River on one side. I'm almost done. I'll let you in in a moment. Is there anything we can help you with? There are a few things more awkward than standing around watching another guy work. 
but I don't know anything about trailer controllers, so I'm happy to keep my hands in my pockets. And even happier when Moody finally shows us inside. The old farmhouse is warm and creaky, with floors sloping toward the center and a long dining table right inside the front door. A spaniel named Smidget rushes up to greet us, and I notice pictures of Jesus and the Virgin Mary on the walls, along with lots of family photos. My aunt, Carm. Hey, Carm. Hello. Nice to meet you. Mom's doing her hair. Okay. It's Good Friday, and Moody's grandmother, Georgette's, going out for lunch with their sisters. Grandma, I'm Elliot. Hi, Elliot. Nice to meet you. Same here. Your hair looks great, by the way. Oh, sure. (laughs) Not the way I wanted it to go, but yeah, sure. Moody's anxious to get his trailer controller sorted out, so I take the opportunity to talk with Georgette while she waits for her ride. Would you like to have a seat? She's known Moody since he was a little smidget, and I haven't gotten to hear a grandma's perspective on sending a loved one off to war yet. I was there when he was born, and this little baby was always kicking around, looking for everything already. He was always looking right from the beginning. Moody and his twin sister, Annika, were born in 1991, not far from here. Their dad was never really in the picture, so they spent a lot of time as toddlers with Georgette and their grandfather, Wayne. So tell me about what Taylor was like as a kid, what your memories of him are as, as a kid growing up. Very jolly little kid, very jolly. Just interested in everything, very, very lively interested in life. He had to go get everything. I think he's still like that. (laughs) It never left him. When the twins were three years old, their mom, Charlotte, married an Air Force jet mechanic named Matt. They followed Matt's Air Force career to North Carolina, then to Japan, and eventually to Mountain Home, Idaho, where the twins lived from age 10 until Annika went off to college and Taylor enlisted. But this old farmhouse always served as a kind of family headquarters, and they made trips back to see Georgette and Wayne every summer. So do you remember when, when Taylor joined the Marines? He and his grandpa talked about it, and his grandpa didn't want him to go because he knew that it was going to be tough. Wayne, who died in 2014, actually served in the Marines in the mid-1950s, just after the Korean War and about a decade before Lyndon Johnson ordered the Marines to land in Da Nang, marking the official start of the American ground war in Vietnam. Just barely missed the one war and just missed the next one. So he wanted to go to to combat. He wanted to serve the, the country. That's what he went in for. But he did not have an opportunity, and he always felt bad about that. But something about the Vietnam years and the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq must have changed Wayne, because he was a lot less gung-ho when Taylor came of enlistment age. He says, I told him, don't do it. And he says he's going to be having a rough life. It's hard enough as it is. Life is tough. But he says, you can't talk him out of anything. If he has his mind set up, he's going to do it. And he did. What do you remember in terms of what you were thinking about the wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan, what do you remember thinking at the time about all of that? I remember thinking we had no business being there. I could not understand why we were there. I really didn't want him to go out to war. He was going to be a foot soldier, and that was the worst place to be in my mind because it was dangerous. They weren't kind out there. They were mean. War is mean. I imagine Georgette and Wayne's worries made the farmhouse even more creaky during the seven months Moody spent in Sangin. And after he came home, Georgette kept right on worrying. Because too many times they have uh, post-stress syndrome, and I wanted them to have help before he got out. 
While we're talking, Moody comes in from working on the truck and takes a seat at the end of the table. He listens as Georgette tells me what he was like when she saw him for the first time after Sangin. He was very rigid, like, on alert, always on alert. Moody came back to live with his grandparents in 2013 when he first got out of the Corps. It was very healthy for him. That's when Wayne was still with us. And he and Wayne would have long talks while I was gone to work. And once in a while, we'd, we'd sit out in the garage and talk, and I'd hear some of the stories. It was enough for me. I'd have nightmares on it. After three months decompressing, Moody set off on a string of post-Marine Corps adventures that would carry him to the Dakotas, Florida, and the Bahamas. But he always knew he could come back here. And when his brief marriage blew up in July 2020, he pointed his truck east and headed for Deer River. He's been here for about eight months now. What's it been like to have him back home for this time? Nice. Nice get to know him again. Each time he comes back, he's a different person. Sometimes more agitated, sometimes happier. This time he's ready to go and find another, another adventure. His normal self. I told him recently that he's a wanderer. He's not one to settle down. He's, he's got to be on his own. He, can, he just needs to go. He just needs to keep looking and, and searching. Georgette bundles up and heads out for lunch. And Moody and I settle into the cozy living room to talk. When I first met Moody, he lived in the most Spartan conditions imaginable, with no running water and not a barber in sight. But somehow, his high and tight haircut was looking sharp, fully within the regs. He was already a very different person than the kid he'd been in high school. Here he is back at patrol base fires in 2011. Back in the States, uh, when I was in high school, I was this little punk. I had a mohawk that was like a foot long, and I dyed it red. (laughs) And uh, I went to concerts all the time, and I used to brag about how good I was at moshing. And I was pretty good, you know? I did my shit. You know what moshing is, right? (laughs) Okay. I've always remembered Moody's description of his mohawk and his years as a mosh pit menace. Now I want to hear the full story. It was at least a foot and a half tall by the time I finally cut it off. What did you use to to hold your mohawk up? Uh, a lot of hairspray. Yeah, did you have spikes or was it like one straight one, just like one saw blade? One straight saw blade. But to be perfectly honest with you, it's such a pain in the ass to put it up. I only did it on special occasions. So most of the time it was just laid over, looking like a rat pretty much. <laughs> Moody grew up listening to metal bands like ACDC and Metallica with his stepdad. In high school, he discovered a taste for harder metal. Bands like Mushroomhead and Slipknot. I didn't necessarily like just listening to the music, but going to the shows, just feeling that energy and being able to go in and have a brawl, but knowing that if you get knocked down, that next guy is going to pick you up. I thought that was just really cool. I really enjoyed doing that. Moshing was a great release for Moody's teenage angst. I know Grandma said I was super jolly, and for the most part I was. But I don't really have an excuse for it, but there was a lot of times where I was incredibly angry. Moody's rebelliousness was mostly a matter of appearance. He was involved in band, drama, and soccer all through high school and had a part-time job. And even though he liked to test his mom's Catholic sensitivities with his devil music, he was a pretty good kid at home. Academics were another story. 
Mom said I had to go to school, so I went to school. But it was so boring, so I didn't pay attention to it. My grades suffered really bad. It was at the point where if I didn't pick myself up in my junior year, I absolutely would have failed. Moody's twin sister, Annika, was on the college track, but Moody was directionless until he started talking to the recruiters who worked at his high school. It was a Marine Corps recruiter who eventually hooked him with a bit of reverse psychology. He saw that I was a tall but incredibly skinny guy. So he fed into my competitive side. He told me that I would never make it in Marine Corps infantry. So I shouldn't even try. I said, all right, bud, watch this. Moody was only 17, so his mom had to co-sign his paperwork. And from that point forward, he knew he had to get his ass in gear. Being a Marine Corps recruit, if you don't graduate high school, you will not go. So I'd like to say that if it wasn't for the Marine Corps, I never would have graduated high school. When he got to boot camp in San Diego, Moody started to wonder if maybe his recruiter had been serious about his dim prospects for success. Long-legged and lean, he could run six-minute miles one after the other and bang out sit-ups no problem. But the strength tests gave him trouble. Pull-ups, I mean, I think the most I ever did in boot camp was like eight. Pretty low on the totem pole there. As hard as the physical stuff was, at least he'd expected it. But what he didn't bank on was having to use his brain again. You think joining the Marine Corps and going to boot camp, there isn't going to be any math. Well, there actually is. Surprise, here comes the math. And I took a lot of extra time to learn a lot of things that most people were able to just bump through without any issues. Just like his recruiter, one of Moody's drill instructors kept telling him he wasn't going to make it. But he dug in and proved him wrong. Then it was on to infantry school at Camp Pendleton, where he literally ran into a painful setback. He was racing toward the finish line during a physical fitness test when another trainee on the sidelines stuck his foot out and tripped him, trying to be funny. For Moody, the prank resulted in a smashed hand. It was ugly. So they shipped me off to the hospital and discovered that it was shattered. I had broken multiple, I think it's metatarsals in your hand. Just rocked the whole thing. Destroyed it. Moody would spend the next five months doing busy work in a holding unit for injured trainees. It would take him nearly twice as long to finish his initial training as it should have. It was super demoralizing. Like, all motivation that I had just depleted over that five months. By the time he got to Blackfoot 1-5, the workup for Sangin was already underway. He got assigned to carry a light machine gun called the M249 Squad Automatic Weapon, or SAW. It was go time, but no matter how hard Moody tried, he couldn't get in step. I wanted it so bad, but for whatever reason, I was failing every which way. So what did that feel like for you, to know that you were trying, you were doing your best, and you just couldn't make it click? You were failing at this thing that you had basically committed your life to at that point. Well, it was hard. I mean, you are around the same people every single day. And the guy that constantly fucks up becomes the alien. You don't have friends. You're avoided at all costs, pretty much. So for the first several months of my Marine Corps career, I was alone. I didn't have anybody. Were you like the kid who nobody wants to sit with at lunch in in elementary school? And 
how did that feel for you? And that's pretty much how it was. Nobody got along with me just because I was such a fuck up. In combat units, patience for screw-ups is never in plentiful supply. But it's especially scarce when a unit is working up for a deployment to a place where the simplest mistakes can get people killed. And even the lowliest privates knew that Sangin was a place where you stood a good chance of getting killed even if you did everything right. It actually got to the point where if the unit had to drop Marines just to keep the numbers at a certain level, I was on the list to get dropped. I was a piece of shit. Moody was still demoralized, but he kept trying. And he remembers one training exercise when he thought he was finally getting the hang of it. I was on my saw, facing towards the mock enemy, getting ready to be assaulted. And I remember looking over the green field, looking up into the mountains, eyeing through my scope, paying attention to my surroundings. And I felt like I was in it. I was there. I knew exactly what was going on. I was doing it perfectly. Like it's, It almost seemed like everything had clicked into place and I was going to be good to go. And then I was kicked in the head and I woke up. And I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. I had fallen asleep. The Marine who kicked Moody in the head was his squad leader at the time. And he was just super disappointed. And obviously incredibly pissed. (laughs) He hit me pretty good. The correction for falling asleep while pulling security in a real combat scenario could be much harsher than a kick in the head. The punishment could be death for you and all your friends. Despite his tactical shortcomings, Moody didn't get dropped. So he was there along with the rest of 1st Platoon when they watched videos and read reports from the 3-5 Marines they were on their way to replace. Every single day they were in a firefight. Every single day they were seeing IEDs or getting hit with an IED. So we, we had a really good idea of what we were getting into. Of course, nobody can really have that perfect mindset until they're in it. None of us expected to actually get home alive. Like, we all talked about it in a joking manner before we left, but it wasn't really a joke. It was dead serious, and it was exactly the kind of pressure Moody needed to hit his stride. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast... NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here 
both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 8,000 miles away from Camp Pendleton, with dirt under his nails and a belt of live ammo locked into his weapon, Moody finally came alive. So it took me all the way up until the day I stepped foot in Sangin to actually click and become what's considered a good Marine. Moody tells me the missing ingredient back at Pendleton was focus, which wasn't hard to find once he knew that people were actually trying to kill him. Once you get into your your actual AO, you don't have to worry about any of that outside shit. It doesn't matter anymore. What happens in the civilian world doesn't matter. Sometimes the studs who excel in training fall apart once things start going boom. And sometimes the shitbags surprise everyone. Everything seemed to click, so I did my job. And I did it properly, I did it right. And in a lot of instances, I did it to the extent where it saved some people or made it easier on people. The squad warmed up to Moody the instant they became responsible for each other's lives. Really, it was almost immediately as soon as we got there. It was more of a forced friendship. It had to be done because that's all we had. I didn't know anything about Moody's pre-deployment struggles back in Sangin. By the time I got there, he and the rest of the squad were thick as thieves. And Moody actually seemed like one of the most stoic guys in the squad. I play Moody some of the tape that's always stuck with me from our talk at PB Fires. So how often do you think about your legs and your feet? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Tell me about that a little bit. You think about it and you're walking around, you're stomping through all the cornfields and the friggin' weeds and, you know, the tree lines and the canals and you're just thinking, damn, that could be an IED right there. Do you ever, I mean, this is kind of a weird question, but I'm only asking this because when I found out that I was going to be coming to Sangin several months ago, I started thinking about it more and more and more. And every time I'd go for a run or I'd go for a hike or I'd get on my bike, I'd be looking down at my legs, be <laughs> thinking, I really like running. I really like biking. I really like walking. I mean, do you ever imagine what life would be like without legs? Yeah, I, d- I do all the time. But right now, we just make jokes about it. As it happens, the sergeant who kicked Moody in the head during training, Josh Yarborough, he got both his legs blown off by an IED in the June 15th, 2011 mass casualty. Moody had no desire to share his fate, 
but he had a sardonic sense of humor about the risk. You see it all the time, you know, people lose their legs and you have to help them out. And then, you know, you think about yours and you're just like, man, I can just imagine going back to Leatherneck or going to Germany and getting a surgery and then finally I'm all healed up and I get my little tink tink legs is what we call them. Our little metal legs. <laughs> we talk about jokes and, you know, like, I think swimming would be so much easier. We just attach paddles to our little metal legs. <laughs> and get those fucking, those balanced legs we see on TV all the time that guys have. Just run a little faster. You know, it's, it's all about making jokes out here. If you don't make jokes, then it's just going to be, it'll be too grim. There wouldn't be any happiness out here. Beyond the mortal danger in Sangin, which everyone shared, Moody was uniquely afflicted by a seemingly insurmountable hardship. Well, me personally... And I didn't notice it at first, but uh, the other Marines in my squad noticed, and some, even other even other squads noticed. I had lost a shit ton of weight, and you can see yourself that I'm extremely skinny. And then I just ca- kept losing more and more weight. All I could do was think of food. <laughs> and that's still all I do is th- I think of food. Like, on patrol, we'll take a quick break every now and then, you know, post-security. And I'll just be sitting there thinking, God, I'm so fucking hungry. <laughs> The only thing I think of is the next meal, like the next packet of ramen that I could eat or the next horrible UGR. I'm just like, God, I don't even care what I'm eating. I just, I'm just, that's all I think about is just wanting to eat. You know, I don't, I don't even care what it is. I hate beans and tomatoes, but I'll eat them anyway because I'm hungry. Yeah, let's pause there. Um, <clears throat> so you were laughing a lot over there hearing yourself describe how hungry you were and how excited you were for even the simplest little snack at the end of the day tell me about what you remember about that for a long time the only food that we had was what was ugr that stands for unitized group ration shelf stable slop designed for mass production and durability not flavor and it would be these like really hard biscuits and this disgusting sausage and a giant can of gravy, like sausage gravy, but the sausage chunks in the gravy was basically grizzle. Like, it's whatever's left over after the cow's been processed or the pig or whatever it was, and they just toss it into the can and call it a day. And that's all we ate for so long. I I feel like it had to have been weeks. That's all we had to eat. I lost at least 20 pounds while we were out there strictly because we didn't have the food. I mean, there were times where we'd see crabs at the bottom of the canal and I would be tempted to rip one of those crabs out of the canal and take a bite. And those canals were disgusting. I mean, literal shit canals. I mean, fuck, we'd see bodies floating down the river and they were still tempting. So tell me about what it felt like to be that hungry. Well, I mean, at that point, your body is literally eating itself. I mean, I don't think I could have been more than 1% body fat at that point in my time. So I like any muscle that I gained throughout all of my training was disintegrating. I could feel myself getting weaker and weaker and weaker, but having to carry more and more and more because more and more people were getting blown up or killed we carried an obscene amount of ordnance just on our bodies. 
mean, just myself, I mean, 800 to 1500 rounds. I mean, that's, that's a lot of weight. On any given day, Moody was carrying between 15 and 40 pounds of ammo for his saw, which weighed about 17 pounds unloaded. He also carried his water and food for the day, his helmet, boots, and body armor, and a counter-IED gadget called a Thor, designed to jam signals from radio-controlled detonators. It was a precaution mandated from on high, even though radio-controlled IED technology was pretty rare in Sangin at the time. The majority of IEDs in the PB Fires AO were pressure plate activated. That Thor? We did not need that. Yeah. But I still had to carry it. I still had to carry the extra batteries for it. Just that Thor alone was like 35 to 40 pounds. The batteries, they're huge. They're each five pounds. And just like 40 pounds, five pounds, all that shit adds up. It's no wonder the guys were always worried about falling in a canal and drowning. When the guys were out on patrol, David Richvalski, the machine gunner, walked up near the front with his M240 Bravo, ready to lay down suppressive fire at the drop of a hat. With his lighter machine gun, Moody performed a similar role at the rear of the patrol, usually walking backwards. It was up to him to clean up whatever the squad was using to mark the path cleared by the sweeper in the front. When I got there, they were using spray chalk or shaving cream. But in the beginning, they used bottle caps. Yeah, bottle caps. Now imagine having, I don't know, 80 to 90, 120 pounds on your back and covering your chest and your weapon and everything else that you have in your pockets and having to bend over every two feet, which for me, I'm six foot two. That is every single step I had to bend over to reach down and pick up a bottle cap. Oh, because you guys didn't want to leave them. We can't leave them. One, that's our supply of markers. And two, the Taliban eventually figured out what we were doing. So if we was to leave those bottle caps, they could easily go out, pick up all those bottle caps, and distribute them in a different trail that me or anybody else could follow, and it'll lead them right onto a pressure plate. The Taliban had accomplished one of the most challenging feats of asymmetrical warfare. They'd forced the overwhelmingly superior enemy to fight on their terms, slowing them to a snail's pace and rendering their space-age weapons systems and gadgets essentially useless, making a mockery of the Marines' counterinsurgency objectives and narrowing their mission to walking around and trying not to get blown up. Meanwhile, the Taliban enjoyed near-total freedom of movement. After all, they knew where the IEDs were, but it was more than that. I've thought a lot over the last decade about the sheer balls it must have taken to go up against the American juggernaut. To size up the helicopter gunships, the drones, the jets with their 500-pound bombs and laser targeting systems, the invisible army of spies tracking your cellular signal, the special operators who might kick down your door in the middle of the night the soldiers and Marines decked out like war robots from the future, carrying enough firepower to bring down buildings. To look at all of that, throw on your flip-flops and say, fuck it, let's get it on. It's insane. But it's not any more insane than going halfway around the world and spending trillions of dollars to fight a war of choice in someone else's country. The Taliban were fighting in their own backyard. They didn't have any doubts about why they were there or who the enemy was. And even at the height of the surge, they never stopped attacking. 
Moody had a pretty clear picture of all of this when he was in Sangin. The only reason we shoot at them is because they're willing to shoot at us. We can't see them unless they shoot at us or unless they're, you know, actively spotting. Like, you know, they have their little radios and shit. They shoot at us, they, they fucking blow us up with IEDs. People in the Marine Corps die every now and then and we'll hit one of them, but because they blend into the environment, they blend into all the other locals, everyone pretty much looks the same to us. So what's it like to hear your description of, of what you thought of the Taliban back then? Still valid. Really? I mean, if they wanted to, they could have completely avoided us the entire time we were out there. They could just move at night with no flashlight and be totally fine. But, I mean, they wanted to fight. That's the only reason they come at us is because they wanted to. It's the kind of David and Goliath story that Americans romanticize when the rebels are on our side. And it wasn't so long ago that Americans were rooting for sandal-clad Afghan militiamen in their Islamic Jihad against Soviet communists. In the 1980s, America supported the Mujahideen with some 20 billion in arms and training. The Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan in 1989 after losing more than 14,000 soldiers in a humiliating defeat that foreshadowed the collapse of the USSR. Some of the American-backed Mujahideen would go on to become top Taliban commanders. And as far as they were concerned, the foreigners who swarmed into Afghanistan after 9-11 were no different than the Soviets. We may have wanted to see ourselves as armed missionaries bringing democracy and girls' schools to a war-torn wasteland. But the Taliban saw us for what we were, invaders like all the others. And they knew that like all the others, we would eventually leave. The high tides of empire that occasionally spill over into Afghanistan always recede. As one Taliban commander is famously rumored to have said, you have the watches, we have the time. Like most veterans I know, Moody suffered no illusions about the righteousness of America's mission in Afghanistan. He was just a grunt trying to survive. Here we are back at PB Fires. What are you guys out there trying to do? What's your end game? What's your ultimate objective? Why are you running combat patrols out there? Why are you talking to people? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm here because my brothers are here. And that's, that's all I need to know, I guess. I mean, I don't have a real answer for that, I guess. I'm just here. The only thing right now that matters to me is getting home alive with as many guys as I can. Even from his worm's eye view, Moody sensed that America was losing the race against time. We talked about it in Sangin, which the squad had nicknamed Viet Stan. And I think if we, if we stay here too long, then it's going to end up like I don't know, Vietnam or something, and the people are going to fight and do rallies to get the hell out of there. And then that's going to end up making us push out even really, really fast because, you know, the president doesn't want people against him, and it just goes all the way down the chain, you know, all the way down to, to me, just Lance Corporal Moody, you know? It seems like you guys are between a rock and a hard place in a lot of ways. Yeah, pretty much. You're expected to make a lot of progress, 
but at the same time, the pullout has to, it's already happening. Yeah. So you guys are out there busting your balls, running 12-hour patrols. It's a a possibility for nothing, really. The anti-war rallies never materialized, which is another important story for another time. But Moody was right about how politics played into the surge. President Obama had campaigned on the promise to end the war in Iraq and devote more resources to Afghanistan. As soon as he got to the White House, the military started asking him to make good on that pledge. Top generals warned him that the war was in a death spiral and a Taliban takeover might be inevitable without a major escalation. Obama didn't want to be blamed for losing the war because of inaction, but he also didn't want to be blamed for plunging the country deeper into a quagmire. So he split the difference. He ordered the surge, but he put a hard deadline for when the extra troops would start coming home. July 2011. Critics accused Obama of essentially signaling to the Taliban that if they could just hang on through the peak of the surge, their path to victory would be clear. Coincidentally, July 2011 was exactly when Moody and I were talking in Sangin. At his grandma's house a decade later, he tells me he saw the writing on the wall even then. They wanted us to try and change a society that is damn near unchangeable. And while we were there, it was semi-successful. But exactly what I and most of my platoon predicted is what happened. We pulled out, the next unit went in, they pulled out, and then it went right back to the Taliban. The Helmand campaign cost the lives of about 350 American Marines, 407 British troops, and thousands of Afghans. The U.S. and the U.K. withdrew from the province in 2014. By 2017, all but a few heavily fortified district centers in Helmand had fallen to the Taliban, including Sangin. How do you make sense of that for yourself, that so much bloodshed on the part of your friends... So much stress on your bodies, long-term mental health issues for some of you, etc. That all of that basically ended in the situation being the same as it was before you got there, before the Marines got there at all, before America got there. How do you, how do you make sense of that in your, in your own head? I don't even try. I was sent there to do a job that I signed up to do. I did it. Now I'm, now I'm out, and I'm doing other things. I don't really sit there trying to make sense of any of that. Do you think that somebody ought to do that? I mean, we're doing it right now, I guess. I mean, the whole purpose in doing this 10-year thing is to try and make sense of it and show the public something about it anyway. One thing Moody says he's had a hard time making sense of over the years is how the higher-ups often seem to ignore the input of the guys who were down in the dirt, even when they were raising alarms about grave threats. Moody tells me about one particularly glaring example. Stassar and Clemens mentioned over multiple times to our higher chain that we need to remove a tree line. Justin Clemens was the platoon sergeant the senior enlisted Marine at PB Fires. He's the one who gathered everyone around during the training exercise in the Mojave Desert for the speech about how not everyone was going to come home from Sangin alive. 
Moody tells me Clemens was worried that the Taliban might use a line of trees and thick undergrowth near the patrol base to sneak in close and plant IEDs. I called Clemens to get more details. He told me he started raising red flags about the tree line as soon as he got to PB fires. First, he asked for bulldozers, then for counterinsurgency funds to hire locals to clear it. And when he started getting desperate, he asked for enough explosives to blow it up. Every other day, he was on the radio to try to remove the tree line. It never happened. And then June 12th come around, and a huge number of the Marines in my squad and the other two squads were injured or killed. Only then did the higher-ups finally approve the resources to destroy the tree line. But it was too late. Justin Clemens was one of 17 Marines who got hit on June 12, 2011. Casualties of the four IEDs buried near the tree line he warned about over and over. He lost the index finger on his right hand and got medevaced back to the United States. Three Marines lost limbs. Joshua McDaniels lost his life. The military bureaucracy that could move mountains to strap down grunts like Moody with man-portable IED jammers of dubious necessity couldn't supply lo-fi equipment to clear a simple obstacle that put the PB Fires Marines in extreme danger. It's a window onto the cruel absurdity of a war in which young soldiers and Marines were armed to the teeth and trained to kill, then told that their real mission wasn't to defeat the enemy, but to protect the people. What lessons can we draw from what your unit was sent to do and what actually happened there? I think the only way to actually stop what Americans want to stop, like whether it be the Sharia law or the way that they treat children, is to take them all out. Like, genocide. That's probably the only actual surefire way to put an end to it. That's also something that we don't want to be doing, is it? Like, I don't really care to watch an entire race of people get annihilated. I wouldn't mind destroying all of the Taliban. Or the Al-Qaeda. Or the Mooj. But I ain't looking to just fucking turn the place into a glass parking lot. Turning places into parking lots was on the table back in the age of total wars between industrial nations, when civilians were considered enemies. Like in August 1945, when American bombers dropped nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing as many as 210,000 people and forcing the almost immediate surrender of Imperial Japan. These atomic footprints on the sands of time can never be erased. But as the Vietnam War made painfully clear, extreme force doesn't defeat insurgencies. From 1965 to 1974, the U.S. dropped about 7.5 million tons of bombs on Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Roughly three times the total dropped on Europe and the Pacific in all of World War II. There are the B-52 bombers striking from nearby Thailand. They pound the zone day in, day out with tons of explosives. On the ground, commanders measured progress by body count and designated free fire zones where anything that moved died. 
By conservative estimates, about 1.3 million people were killed in the fighting, including hundreds of thousands of civilians. But the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong never surrendered. With this saturation, why haven't the North Vietnamese positions been destroyed? They stuck it out until the Americans left and seized the capital of South Vietnam two years later. I don't know if Vietnam was on Moody's grandfather's mind when he tried to talk him out of enlisting, but it definitely influenced how America approached counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. The rules of engagement, basically when you're allowed to use lethal force, would be geared toward minimizing civilian casualties, not annihilating the enemy. So-called precision airstrikes would largely replace mass bombing raids. There'd be no official body count, no free fire zones, and with a few notable exceptions, no destroying villages to save them. The metric of success would be how much terrain was controlled by pro-government forces. For infantry marines in Sangin, progress would be measured in footsteps, how much ground the squads covered on their daily presence patrols. This played to the Taliban's most significant tactical advantage. They had no rules, so they could use anti-personnel landmines. But the Marines couldn't, because there's just no way to prevent civilians from stepping on them. And kids with blown-off limbs do not win hearts and minds. The problem is, even with strict ROEs, thousands of Afghan civilians still got killed by the coalition forces who were supposed to be protecting them. And Moody's not the first to tell me that he thinks the ROEs were not only confusing, but they also put the Marines in danger. A lot of the reason that any of us got injured or killed was because of stricter ROEs. If they would have loosened the reins a little bit, we could have taken care of the job that much easier and had way fewer casualties. But then the question becomes, to what end? The only end would be to keep more people safe and whole so that more of them could come home. But you haven't solved the problem of what was the point of being there in the first place. It's like you said back then, if they weren't shooting at us, we wouldn't be shooting at them. If you weren't there, they wouldn't have been shooting at you. You know, it's like the best way to keep people from getting hurt is to not send them in the first place. There's also such a thing as retreat, even though you'd have a hard time finding it in the programming code, the U.S. Marine Corps, which takes the legendary words of a World War I officer for an unofficial motto. Retreat? Hell. We just got here. In October 2010, when 3-5 had just gotten to Sangin and they were hitting IEDs almost every day, Defense Secretary Robert Gates actually offered to pull the battalion out of the district. But the Marines' top commander, General John Amos, refused, claiming it would crush morale. Moody tells me he agrees with that decision. That was a quick, fast way to severely demoralize his troops. Put them in there tell them to fight until they're dead and then say, oh yeah, you know what? Your mission was actually useless. I'm going to go ahead and see if you want to pull out. <laughs> no. Why even ask? I mean, this is where I get 
really twisted because, and you said this back at the time that we weren't going to stay there forever. So eventually we were going to get pulled out. But at least as each individual squad, uh, platoon company unit, at least their individual mission would not have been useless. Maybe as a whole. Yeah. It all really didn't mean much of anything, which is, well, it didn't mean much of anything, but at least that particular squad, that particular platoon, that company, their mission wasn't rendered meaningless because of one man saying, do you want to pull out because it sucks? That would be really demoralizing Mm -hmm. more so than losing more men experiencing more mass casualties and traumatic amputations and dealing with all that to a degree. It's like stopping a football game in the middle because one team's getting annihilated. Are you really going to stop the football game because you're 10, 10 down? So it sounds like what you're kind of saying is at the small unit level and for the individual person and for the, for the individual squad and platoon, what mattered at the time was contained in that deployment. Like that deployment needed to be seen through to the end yeah. in order for it to have meaning. And even if ultimately years later, in the subsequent chapters, those gains or that, you know, the, the achievements or accomplishments of that deployment were rendered meaningless, so to speak. The analogy I've been using is like building sandcastles in the tide. Yeah. Like you spend all this work, you know, digging this sand, carting it in, in buckets, you build this big, elaborate, beautiful sandcastle. And then the tide comes in and it's gone. But you're, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like, the effort to build that sandcastle up to the end over the course of that deployment and to know that you, you know, stuck it out, endured the suck that for you guys that allowed you to walk away with some meaning. And that if you had had to abort that halfway through, that would have been worse. I think so. You think taking more all casualties, the, the injuries that would, that had already occurred, it would have made it all meaningless. We'll be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Taylor Moody got home from Afghanistan in October 2011, he'd wasted away to a spindly 125 pounds. He'd been hungry for seven months, and it was finally time to chow down. Coming back from Sangin, one of the first things that I did was order a 24-party pack from Taco Bell. <laughs> Soft tacos. That was a mistake, because I ate that whole box. I hadn't had any form of fast food in a number of months. And all of a sudden, I'm eating an entire party pack worth of tacos. I was on that pot within about 15 minutes after finishing those tacos. And I was there for a minute. (laughs) I was there for a while. Back at Camp Pendleton with his friends, he started pounding the liquid calories, too. Eventually, it got to a point where if it was like 10 a.m. and I didn't have a beer in my hand or down my gut anyway. I was getting the shakes pretty bad. Without the pressure of combat, Moody's motivation fell off. In June 2013, he packed up his barracks room and headed east. His destination was Deer River, but he detoured south to make a couple of very important stops. First, he went to Arlington National Cemetery, where he visited the graves of Joshua McDaniels and Nicholas O'Brien. And then he headed to Asheville, North Carolina, where he met up with Michael Dutcher's mom, Teresa, and his twin brother, Tim. Remember his mom being really quiet, like kind of in a hauntingly quiet. Like she would talk, but she wasn't really talking to you or anybody directly. She was very... She was obviously taking it incredibly difficult, like really hard. And... I imagine, at least at that point in time, seeing somebody that was there or had anything to do with it might have made it more difficult. What about Tim? Tim seems to have taken it easier. 
In fact, I think us seeing Tim was more difficult for us than Tim seeing us. But, I mean, fuck, the first time I ever saw him scared the fucking shit out of me. I thought he was Michael Dutcher. I mean, they're, they're twins anyway. Teresa and Tim gave Moody directions to Dutcher's grave at the Veterans Cemetery outside of town, where he went to pay his respects. He was such a great guy, and we were so fucking close to being done. Like, we were, Stuart, like, was it a couple of weeks, a few weeks before we had to leave? And Dutcher, of all people, had to be the one that got killed. Like, one of the nicest dudes in that entire platoon. Maybe the nicest dude in that entire platoon. So I just remember standing there, dead silent. Like, no other, like, not many of the other injuries or deaths really hit me that hard. But Dutchers did. After visiting Dutcher's grave, Moody headed almost 900 miles north to Deer River, where he spent three months cooling his heels here at his grandparents' house. Sometimes literally, spending hot summer days wading the river with a fishing rod. It was a good place to decompress. When I came here, I lived actually upstairs in that little bedroom up there. And my grandfather gave me two rules. He said, you will not have women here overnight, and you will not drink to excess while in this house. The women overnight thing I didn't care about. The drinking thing was difficult. I was pretty much an alcoholic. So that really forced me to sober up. While he was learning how to be a civilian again and dreaming up his next big adventure, Moody got to spend precious time with his grandfather, Wayne, who probably looked at him a little differently now that he was a battle-hardened veteran instead of a punk kid with a spike mohawk. Moody wanted to be helpful, so one day he took it upon himself to clean out an old woodshed. I asked my grandpa, you know, what do you want to do with all of this stuff? Like, do we bring it to a dump or what? And he says, let's burn it. (laughs) So we threw all of it, everything that could burn other than the scrap metal, into that pit. And I'm talking about old carpet like a lazy chair, a bunch of real nasty stuff that really shouldn't be burning into that burn pit, threw some gasoline on it and let it rip. Those flames were probably 20 feet tall. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Really wasn't the best choice, but we let it rip. I remember seeing the biggest grin on his face. He loved it. And he says, you're so lucky your grandmother's not here because she'd be ripping into both of us right now. That was a good time. It probably wasn't what Georgette had in mind when she hoped Moody would get help after coming home. But a 20-foot bonfire with Grandpa was its own kind of therapy. That was actually the last big hurrah that we had together. When Wayne died the following year, Moody lost the man who'd been a second father to him and one of his only confidants. Moody tells me he hasn't opened up much about Afghanistan since he came home. 
When people ask, he tells them the bare minimum. To anybody outside of the, like the Marines that were there with me, just enough to horrify them and get them off my case. So like what? Like, give me an example. Pretend I'm somebody who you don't really want to talk to. And I'm like, so man, what was it? What was it like over there? I just tell them the worst of it. I watched McDaniels lose both of his legs. When I finally got to him, his shorts were melted into his groin and his ball sack was destroyed. That usually puts a stop to it. Yeah, that's usually enough. Moody says he hasn't made many friends since he got out of the military. It's partly his solitary nature, but he's also bounced around a lot over the years. After that stint at his grandparents' house in 2013, he went broke and decided to go looking for a job in the North Dakota oil fields. He made it to a Walmart in Williston, the epicenter of the fracking boom, and that's as far as he got. I ran out of fuel in the Walmart parking lot. Like, almost as soon as I rolled into the space. I made, I made sure I was straight in the space. I rolled in, and that's when it died. And North Dakota, as you may know, can be brutal. <laughs> and in the year of 2013, it was. It was cold, my man. <laughs> it was like negative 25. Didn't have any money to put fuel in the damn thing, so I couldn't get warm. So I was covered up in Carhartts and blankets, just freezing my ass off in the back seat of a sunny ass to go to Toyota Tacoma. On about day three of being down and out, Moody walked to a bar to get warm. As luck would have it, a drunk guy passed him a business card for a drilling company. The next morning, Moody walked to their office with icicles hanging from his beard and handed the card to the receptionist. She said, oh, you know a guy's name. I better go get him. Okay. So she runs off and gets him. Eventually it got to the point where he said, yeah, you know, I think we can get you a job. Can you pass a piss test? And I said, fuck yeah dude i can't even afford a bottle of water where am i you know where am i gonna get the drugs from this was my first actual job since the marine corps so i didn't even know how to discuss pay really it's like oh well actually you're gonna be making kind of low pay about 23.76 an hour <laughs> seeing stars dancing like fuck yeah Woo! moody was a derrick hand His job was to run pipe into the ground from a tower 150 feet up in the air, which he says he did for 16 hours a day, almost every day, for two years. Moody lived in a man camp where he had his own room with a clean bed, laundry service, and something near and dear to his heart. Three square meals a day. It was hot, cooked meals right there at the camp. The money was great, but Moody got tired of the backbreaking labor. So he pulled up stakes and went to Florida, where he invested his oil field money in becoming a commercial diver. All within a, uh, like seven months, I went from zero, never been in the water on a regulator, to a scuba instructor and a commercial diver with three different organizations. I can certify you in how to find a quarter at the bottom of the ocean if you wanted me to. <laughs> then he split for the Bahamas, where he worked as a scuba instructor on dive boats. But that got old, too. I wanted mountains again. So that's when I went back to South Dakota and got into the trees. In Rapid City, Moody worked on a tree crew doing arbor care and wildland firefighting. The Black Hills reminded Moody of where he grew up in Idaho. But the best part was that he got to hang out with his brothers from Third Squad, Brian Shearer and John Bollinger. 
the Wanderer started to feel like maybe he was finally where he belonged. And that was the only place I really, like, really considered calling my home. To Moody's surprise, as much as anyone else's, he would end up spending four years in South Dakota. But then a brief adventure in marriage ended in heartbreak when his new wife decided she wanted to join the army, and she didn't want Moody to come with her. They'd only been married for about a year when they decided to get divorced. Did that play some part in your decision to leave South Dakota? That played the part in me deciding to leave, but I still had that adventure bug. So I actually ended up leaving on the same day that she did, July 14th, when she shipped off the basic, and I shipped off for here. Moody's been back here in upstate New York for eight months, driving a snowplow and a tractor trailer for work and spending time with his family. Now he's all packed up again, ready to embark on a journey to Alaska, where he's got a wildland firefighting job lined up for the summer, and where he'll get to spend the winter ripping around on ATVs with David Richvalski, one of his best friends from Third Squad. Maybe this time, he'll finally find what he's looking for. Set yourself in the corner. A few of Moody's aunts and uncles have turned up to see him off. At dinner time, everyone piles in around that big table near the front door. It's Good Friday, so Georgette's having fish, but everyone else is having pizza. Vegetable pizza, cheese pizza, wings, and there's salad. I know what I'm getting. Pizza. Georgette and Wayne raised five children in this old farmhouse, and it's not hard to see why Deer River is the center of gravity that pulls Moody back. For a wanderer who's always seeking something new, it's nice to have a place that stays the same. A place that seems safe from the tide. Where people who've known you for your whole life are always excited to hear about your latest adventure and to find out who you've become since you last went away. The conversation tonight is loud, with lots of good-natured teasing and laughter. I recognize much younger versions of some of the faces around the table in the framed photos on the wall, including Moody in his dress blues. It's hard not to think about all the families who have a picture on the wall like this one, of someone who never came home. Next time on Third Squad, we head south to visit Jeffrey Lopez at his mom's house on the New Jersey coast. I asked my mother to like sign the papers for me, but she wouldn't let me. I was 17, so then I had to wait like a, another year, and then finally, once I was 18, then I joined. He dropped out of school and told me, I'm joining the Marines, and he left. And that's when the torture started for me. He goes away, and I'm left wondering what's going to happen to him. I begged God to protect him. For me, every minute that he was over there felt like torture, because I was always waiting to receive bad news. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. 
Funding support for Third Squad comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. If you're interested in supporting our work with a financial contribution, please visit the donate page at thirdsquad.com, where you'll also find photographs from Sangin and from our road trip. Original music for Third Squad by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.